Welcome to the Way Church Podcast. The Way Church exists to love God, love others, and make disciples. You can find out more about the Way Church at thewaychurchrva.com. Now we hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Well, good morning. It is good to gather. It's good to be together. Hey, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning, so if you want to go and start making your way there, that'd be a good thing. We're continuing our series, Cultural Church. Cultural Church. Again, we're asking the question, what kind of church are we going to be by observing what kind of churches churches become? One who is influenced by the culture, or are we going to be a church that influences the culture? And those are the two paths that churches take. And so that's the question we're continuing to ask this morning, and we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to cover all of chapter 3, so that's a lot. So we've got a lot of ground to cover in a short period of time. Usually, this would probably be at least three sermons, and we're going to do it in one, all right? So did you guys pack lunch? Did you bring it with you? It was bring your own lunch day? Did you guys not get that email? If you're taking notes, you can title this sermon, Servant Leadership. Servant Leadership. And as we talked about, we started every Sunday since we started this time together. The main point of this letter that the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy was he was going to the church in Ephesus to correct conduct. And that's 1 Timothy 3, 15. We see the reason. He says, I've written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. And what's noteworthy is it's Correcting individual activity within the church collectively. And that's the context of what we see here. And so some of these, these things that we're going to see, especially this morning, are very, what I call it, nuts and boltsy, right? Very much like doctrine, do this, don't do that stuff. But I want us to see the specific truth and the general truth. Specific issues that applies today generally into our life specifically and generally. I know that sounds confusing. Hopefully it won't be as we go through this time together. And as we come to God's word, 1 Timothy 1.1, again, shows us the weight of what's being written. Paul's words carry the same weight as Jesus' words himself. We believe that the entire Bible is Holy Spirit inspired. And so it means it's all God's word, all God's rel- all relevant and authoritative. And so that's how we approach this and any other text like it. This, uh, this week, I took my two older boys out for a quick lunch, some fast food because we're fancy like that. And so we were uh, sitting there eating, and uh, an older gentleman uh, struck up a conversation with us. And so we started talking about faith and, and Jesus and family, and it was a great conversation. The guy obviously loved the Lord. And I asked what I thought was a simple question, innocent question. I thought it's a good question. I said, so where do you go to church at? And the whole demeanor changed. And he asked me, do you think the Apostle Paul would have asked me that question? And I said, yeah, yeah, I do. Matter of fact, yeah, I do. And I explained because the whole New Testament, like there's a, there's a total rejection of the local church right now. And it, this question goes up a lot. But the whole New Testament, the bulk of the New Testament, is written to local churches or local church leaders to show how the churches conduct themselves within the local church context or to correct action within local churches. And so, what, on one hand, I said, yes, yes, he would have asked, I, I believe. But after I thought about it a little bit more, not to this person in general uh, specifically, I thought maybe no, maybe Paul wouldn't have asked that. Maybe he's right in a, in a certain way. 
Because the New Testament assumes that the Christian is a part of the local church. The New Testament doesn't know a Christian separated from local church. So maybe that wouldn't have asked because the assumption was, why would you not be? That'd be peculiar. So with that, we come to what we see here this morning of the structure of a local church. And it begs me the, the question I get a lot. I want to ask you, really, the, the, it's not a question I get, but let me ask you this. Whose church is this one, the way church? Whose church is this? Thank you. Jesus. This is Jesus' church. Let's not be confused about that. It's not Josh's church. It's not any other pastor leaders this church. It's, it's Jesus' church. And it makes me a little bit nervous when people say, how's your church doing? Right? It's not my church. It's Jesus' church. So we have to understand that the local church, the universal church, is all Jesus' church. Colossians 1.18 tells us that he, Jesus, is the head of the church. Jesus said, I will build my church, Matthew 16. It's his church. What's interesting, though, is how does Jesus build his church? It's through us. He builds his church through us. He says, go and proclaim the gospel. That's how he builds his church. People come to faith through proclaiming the gospel. People believe, and then they're discipled. Disciples are made, gathered, leaders are appointed, elders. That's what we see in the New Testament. That's what we see in Acts. In Acts 14, you see that they're going through, making disciples, and then they go back to the town, especially in Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas, and it says they go back through every town and appointed elders in every church where disciples have been made. And a couple things that are noteworthy is elders, overseers, is interchangeable used for what we call pastors. It's all the same office position. We come, we come to the term pastors that we use commonly here uh, in our culture specifically. It comes from shepherding, and we'll get to that in a minute. What we also see is that every time we see the word elders used, it's all in plurality. So again, Acts 14 says they appointed elders in local church. In Titus 1, Paul appoints Titus to go and says, appoint elders in every town. So the clear, clear structure of church leadership when it comes to pastoral ministry is a plurality of pastors or elders. And that's important because as the Lord leads, that's our desire for this church because we believe it's the most biblical model. A plurality of pastors. If you just think through this just rationally, I have a list of weaknesses. My wife's in children's ministry right now. Feel free to ask her. A list of weaknesses. Do you have some strengths? But you can see the beauty in plurality because as the Lord raises up and we appoint other pastor leaders, we complement one another for the betterment of the church. We complement each other's strengths and weaknesses. So we know it makes sense, but it's also biblical. And so we see Jesus builds his church, but he builds it with structure. As we talked a little bit last week, God is a God of order. And so he puts structure into this church. And we see specifically two complementary leadership offices or roles. Elders and deacons. And that's what we're going to get to this morning. Elders and deacons. And so as we go through this time together, I want us to ask two questions or strive to answer two questions. One is, why does a church need elders and deacons? And two, who would God have us appoint to these offices? Two questions we're going to strive to answer well this morning. Because I know our history shapes us, our experiences shapes us, and so sometimes much more than what the Bible shapes us as we, when it comes to church and church structure. And so with that, we're going to dive in. 
Uh, 1 Timothy 3, we're going to cover 1 through 7. We're talking about that and break it up a little bit. Uh, but we've got a lot of text to cover, so we're going to go pretty quick. You ready? Here we go. Verse 1 says, This is a trustworthy, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert, or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Furthermore, he must be of good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace in the devil's trap. Now, here's the temptation. When we go through texts like this, there's a temptation to check out if you're not a pastor, elder, overseer. How does this apply to me? What's interesting about these qualifications is if you look at them, wouldn't you expect that from any Christian? Would you expect any Christian to be a bully? Quarrelsome? No, I mean, all these, you can go down the list. What this is showing us are marks of a mature Christian. That's what we're seeing here. So this applies to all of us, but especially more for those who are going to lead God's church. And so I want us to be asking the question, one, how does this apply to me? And how does this apply to us? But as we make strides towards pursuing a plurality of elders to lead this church well in a way that glorifies God and edifies the church, who is God working in our midst right now? Who do we see that meets these qualifications? These are prerequisites. So as the point, what we're going to cover is pastors specifically are called to be servant leaders who lead humbly with diligence and gentleness and are solely motivated out of a love for God and love for others. I know we keep going back. It's more than a mission statement. It's more than a mission statement for us. It goes back to everything we are and what we do. A love for God and love for others shapes how we live as Christians. But pastors have a unique responsibility more so than other Christians. It's how they lead God's people. And two texts I just want to touch on real quick that really show the gravity of the responsibility of the pastor, elder, overseer is Acts chapter 20, verse 28. He's talking to the elders of the church. And he says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Another reference for local church. Of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers. Shepherd the church of God. And that's where we get pastors from, shepherding the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, I want you to feel the weight of the responsibility that pastors have for leading the church. The church, we have been purchased with the blood of Christ. So dare I say, that's of a lot of worth to Jesus. You are of extreme worth to Jesus. And so pastors are to lead with that mindset. And then Hebrews 13 talks to us as a church. Verse 17 tells us, to obey our leaders, that's our pastoral leadership, to obey our leaders in the word we love so much, submit to them. We, we talk about that a lot here. We love submission. Submit. Since, this is important, obey your leaders and submit to them since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. 
pastors, elders, overseers are responsible for you to God. Because one day, me and every other pastor, elder, overseer of any local church ever will stand before God and give an account how we cared for his church. And so he calls the church to obey to leaders that lead well. Because if you don't, it says, so they can do this with joy and not with grief. For that, that being grief, would be unprofitable for you. So once you feel the weight of the pastor, elder, overseer, and what they bear, they should feel before God. But notice he says it's a good thing to aspire to this office of pastor, elder, overseer. My question, and a question I ask anyone that feels a, a, a desire to be a pastor, is why? Why would you do that to yourself? I, when, so I used to be in full-time fire service and at the same time, I was leading youth ministry. My wife and I were co-leading youth ministry at a local church, serving there, uh, filling the role of a youth pastor, even though I wasn't a pastor. And then God started calling me. I uh, started feeling the urge to leave the fire service and pursue full-time pastoral ministry. And so the first thing I go to is, is my pastor and say, I, I don't know what to do with this. I'm feeling this urge, this, dare I say, calling. And he told me this, because I expected like, oh, praise God, Josh, go and do it. You're going to be awesome. That's not what I got. He said, if you can do anything else, do that. I don't know, that's a personal characteristic knock. I don't know, but I saw something that I didn't. The point was, it is a calling. And a calling creates that aspiring to that. It has to be a calling. So anytime I talk to someone, I say, why? Why do you want to do that? Is there anything else you can do and be happy and not that? And it got for me that there was nothing else that I could do that would just satisfy the urge, the desire, the burden I had to pastor. Here I am. So anyway, it's a calling. It's a calling. That's the only reason people would ever do this. And it says noble work. If anyone's ever served in ministry, you know it's joyful, it's encouraging, it's great, it's rewarding, and it's work. Like we forget, like sometimes ministry is work. We expect it to be always just exciting and joyful, and sometimes there's things I have to do that just don't want to. Let's just be honest. It's work sometimes, but it's noble work. There's honor in the office of pastor, elder, overseer, which means that person must be honorable. And that's what we're going back to. Is that person honorable? And this is an extensive list of character qualifications that we're not going to have time to dig into completely, but let me touch on a couple. One, above, repro above reproach or blameless. This does not mean perfection. This means there's, some, there's nothing that someone can stand a, a, an accusation against in your life, right? Like we're all going to fall short, but it doesn't mean perfection. In other words, there's no unresolved sin, as much as it depends on you, right? Sometimes you can pursue reconciliation and with, uh, with other people, and you can't change people, but you're pursuing peace with all people as much as it depends on you. But the elder here is to set the example. This is what 1, Timothy, or 1 Peter 5, 3 tells us, to set the example to follow for the local church. So that's what above reproach is. It doesn't mean perfection, but there's nothing that anyone could accuse you of that would be just extremely damaging to who you are. We're going to fall short? Absolutely. Another one, just self-controlled. This is important. 
It means they're, they're controlling their own desires, not controlled by their desires. And it gives four what not to as an example. Do you notice that? It says self-controlled, and it says not to be controlled by these things. Don't be an excessive drinker. Not a bully. Not quarrelsome, not greedy. Again, every Christian everywhere, I mean, this is not earth-shattering stuff. This is not super-Christian stuff. This is Christianity. Like, could you call yourself a Christian and be quarrelsome? I don't see how you could. That's not evidence of the Holy Spirit working in your life. Now, are we growing? Absolutely. Like, give us some, some, some grace. But is that the common characteristic? So the point here is, are these things controlling you or compelling you? Versus what 2 Corinthians 5.14 tells us is that the love of Christ compels us. What's controlling and compelling us? It also says good reputation among outsiders. It's interesting. So that as a Christian represents Christ, pastors have a unique position of representing Christ and the church. So do we have a good reputation among outsiders, us individually and us as pastors? So we have to be engaged in the community that we are in. I heard a, a great story last week, and I didn't experience this, so I'm telling it from another church member's point of view. She said that she, was a, she saw this homeless person, and there was another person who brought a bucket of water and a washcloth, and out on the median somewhere was washing this homeless person's face and hands. And I'm thinking, isn't that what Christianity should look like? Like, what, shouldn't that what our pastors should be doing? That servant leadership? I mean, what a beautiful picture of the gospel. So do we have a good reputation among outsiders? And one last thing I just want to touch on real quick is the family qualifications that we see here. It doesn't mean that a pastor has to be a husband or have kids. It doesn't mean that. But if, the God, has, if God has appointed you in those roles of a husband or a father, you need to be leading well. The pastor should be leading well. The husband of one wife literally means one woman man. That's what it means, literally, a one-woman man. So it clearly prohibits polygamy, promiscuity, not being remarried. Now, if you're remarried, does that elicit some more biblically-based questions? Absolutely. But it means one-woman man. So we don't draw lines, and we're talking about this again. We try to draw lines where the Bible doesn't draw lines. But are you leading your family well? So if you're a husband, are you loving, striving to love your wife as Christ? love the church? Are you a father raising your children in the training and instruction of the Lord? And the question we're really asking is, does this person, does his family respect him enough to submit to his loving leadership? That's what we're asking. So we're thinking through who is God raising up to be pastors, elders, overseers. Does his family respect him enough to submit to his loving leadership. Because if not, if he's not leading well at home, he will not lead well in the local church. He will not. And this is a point for all of us, is a man's first responsibility before God is how he leads his family. So if you're a man, and God's blessed you with a family, or one day he may bless you with a family, your first responsibility before God is how you lead that family. How you care for your wife and lead your wife and love your wife and how you're raising your children, you will be accountable one day. But the point is, if the man's not leading his family well, he will not lead the church well. 
Again, now this long list of qualifications. Notice all of them are character qualifications besides one. In other words, character matters a lot. Character matters a lot. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And this should be what we see in our pastors, elders, overseers. So the one competency qualification we see here in this long list is able to teach. Not everyone has been gifted with this teaching, but the pastor, elder, overseer has to be able to teach. The teaching ministry is one of the main ministries of the pastor. And it looks a couple different ways. One, we're called to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's a teaching aspect. And so I say it like this. I view this like Home Depot, right? If I have a broken sink, I'm going to go to Home Depot, get some guidance. They can show me the parts, and then they're going to equip me to go and fix my sink, which is a miraculous move of God if that happens. What they're not going to do is go and fix my sink for me, right? Similar to the church. A lot of you have passions and desires And so our role and my role as a church leader in our church is to equip you to fulfill the call that God has on your life. God's given you a burden. How can we support and equip you? It's not going to be necessarily a church's ministry, but how can we come alongside you to fulfill the ministry God's called you to? See how that works? Sometimes we say, I've got this great idea. What are you guys going to do about it? That's not what the Bible says. God's given you that burden. And man, I hope we can come along well to help equip you for the work that God's called you to. But there's a difference there. But the main thing we see here is the teaching of God's word is a priority of the pastor. To rightly handle scriptures, Titus 1, 9 tells us in this way of teaching God's word that the elder should be holding to the faithful message as taught so that he'll be able to both encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. And so this main priority is what we see in Acts 6. I want to touch on Acts 6 just real quick, and then we're going to move on. But Acts 6, we see the early church growing, and then as people come together, we know what happens. Division starts occurring, right? Because people are people. Y'all are great. Other people are people. People come together, things happen. We all don't get along. That's what happens in early church. And so we see some widows being neglected, in the daily distribution of food. In Acts 6, we see the the apostles come together to address this complaint. And so they summon each other, and they summon the company of disciples, and the apostles say, it would not be right for us to give up preaching of the word to wait on tables. Now this seems kind of like harsh, doesn't it? Like somebody else can do that meaningless job. That's not what's being said here. It's priority, not superiority. The priority of the apostles at the time was a preaching of the word. Not to wait on tables. And that word wait also is translated serve, which is where we get the word deacon from. It's the same word. So it wouldn't be right for us to deacon tables because we're responsible for deaconing the word. So what do they do? They tell the disciples, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, whom we can appoint to this duty, specific task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And you see structure starting to form in the early church. Now, it's important because what this is, this is not pastors and deacons, but this is for sure a prototype and forerunner to what we see as pastors and deacons. 
And so they appoint seven men to fulfill this task. Which leads us to what we see in 1 Timothy 3.8. Because as we see in Acts 6, the forerunner prototypes of pastors and deacons, we saw the qualifications for elders, pastors, overseers. What about deacons? Do they have any qualifications that they need to meet to be able to serve in this capacity? Well, yeah, they do. Look at verse 8 with me. It says, deacons likewise should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested. If they prove blameless, they can serve as deacons. Wives likewise should be worthy of respect, not slanderers, self-controlled, faithful in everything. Deacons are to be husbands of one wife, managing their children and their own households competently. For those who have served well as deacons require a good, st- or require a good standing, for themselves and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So, noteworthy things here. As pastors are called to be servant leaders, deacons are to be called or to be leading servants. H.B. Charles says it like this way. He says, deacons lead by serving and elders serve by leading. It's all servant-oriented and all ministry that matters. And once again, we see here that a strong emphasis is placed on the candidate's character. And similar to those qualifications of a pastor, with one big difference, the ability to teach is not on this. They're not called to be able to have that authoritative teaching that the pastor, elder, overseer is required to have. But like deacons, or like pastors, deacons are first to be tested. And so this is important. For those who seek church leadership are to be those who seek to serve and not seeking status. And this is important because we get that twisted sometimes. You're seeking to serve. You're not seeking a level that you think you're hoping to achieve. We, we bring our CEO atmosphere in here and apply it to the local church, and that's not what that is. Pastors and deacons serve. And so with deacons, there's not a whole lot of clarity we have with the role of deacon. We have a lot of clarity when it comes to the functions of the pastors, elders, overseers. With deacons, not so much in the Bible. There's only a few references. In Acts 6, could be a reference to what deacons would be. Philippians 1 specifically says deacon, but that's about it as a title. Romans 16 refers to Phoebe as a servant of the local church in Synchria, or deacon of that church. And then also here in 1 Timothy 3. That's what we know for deacons. So with that, churches apply deacons' roles and responsibilities in various ways. And so we're going to try to stick as close as we can to what we see in Scripture to be able to have deacons serve in a way that's fruitful for the church. So with that, we see that the Bible seems to indicate that deacons lead by serving in specific ministry areas. Again, Acts 6, I think, serves as a blueprint of what deacons would be become. And so they were meeting a specific need at a specific time. Phoebe was widely accepted as carrying the letter to Rome, as indicated in Romans 16. But what's interesting and what's not explicit in Acts 6 about the prototype forerunners of deacons is one, they were meeting a need, ministry need, that was causing division. So they're meeting a physical need, but notice also that they are what's been called shock absorbers, unifiers. Deacons serve to help facilitate the unity of believers. Because in Acts 6, what that was causing was a disunified 
disjointed, dysfunctional church because of the damage that was being done there. They're, they're also unity builders. So the question for us is, what ministry areas do we need deacon leadership in this church? I want us to think through that. So as, as we're thinking through, who will the Lord may be leading and raising up within our midst to be elders, pastors of this church? What about deacons? Let me give you some examples. What about deacon of member care? Pastors responsible for, ultimately, member care. But Lord willing, as this church continues to grow, we need a more specific hands-on, all-the-time approach to care for each other well. Maybe a deacon of member care. Maybe a deacon of guest care. How about a deacon of hospitality? Doesn't that sound crazy? It sounds crazy until you realize how important hospitality is in the life of a Christian and in the life of the local church. And also, what we see here is deacon leadership can be seasonal. Sometimes things come up, and issues arise, and the ministry is needed to, pres- to meet a specific need, and we may need a deacon to help lead and coordinate that ministry. So I want us to think through what deacons do. And then number two, we're going to spend just a little bit on this. Who can be deacons? I'm going to say there's a lot of charity um, with how churches approach this. Like elders, there's a lot of confusion on who can serve as deacons. So I'm going to try and walk through this real quick. And Again, a little nuts and boltsy, but it matters. So the question is, can women serve as deacons? That's the question. Elephant in the room, can women serve as deacons? Now churches, biblically sound churches, approach this from different angles. Again, not a lot of clarity on deacons. My answer in this church's stance, can women serve as deacons? Yes, if. That's an important if. If the church is structured as we have seen last week and this morning, with elders functioning as elders and deacons functioning as deacons, as we've laid out. The answer would be yes. Let me walk through this a little bit with you in this passage we just saw. It's going to be pretty quick. If you want to go back and listen to it, it's going to be recorded, be sent out. But in verse 11, in 1 Timothy 3, verse 11, notice it says wives. That same word is also translated women. This is important. In ASB, NIV, translated women as well. Some translations put their wives in there. That word there is not in the original transcripts. That word for woman and wives is also used specifically about woman, women in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, verse 12, verse 14. Specifically for women, the same word. That matters. Okay? Number two, the character required of these women or wives are those required of elders and male deacons, which only makes sense if an official capacity is intended. You guys tracking so far? You don't have to agree with me, just as long as it makes sense to you. Three, it's a question. Why would there be requirement, required qualifications for deacon wives but not pastor wives? I think that question matters. I think it matters a lot. Seems strange unless he isn't referring to deacon wives. 
and the flow of 1 Timothy 3 matters. So if we break down the flow, we see verses 1 through 7 as qualifications of an overseer. But the deacon section is three separate parts. So it could be broken into 8 through 10 would be general qualifications for a deacon. Verse 11 would be specific qualifications for female deacons. And verse 12 would be specific qualifications for male deacons. With verse 13, a summary for all deacons. I go, I went through that fast. This is recorded. I'll send out notes tomorrow. But it matters. Trying to interpret scripture well. And then you got this problem with Phoebe. It's a problem for church leaders. What do you do with Phoebe? Romans 16 She's called a servant, also translated deacon, but of a local church, which indicates, in my opinion, an official capacity. She's not just any servant. She's a servant of the church in Synchria. It's an official capacity. Again, biblical teachers, men that love God's word, will disagree on this. But I think it matters. So in short, when it comes to scripture, when it comes to deacons, we want to strive to not forbid anything the Bible doesn't forbid or draw in lines where the Bible doesn't draw lines. And I think with deacons, and if they function as such, as we laid out, plurality of elders, deacons who serve, leading servants, then it's totally allowable and encouraged that women should serve in this capacity. And I hope this makes sense. I know it's nuts and bolts, but doctrine matters. Doctrine matters a lot. And we're setting still, we're two years into this church, and we're still setting the foundation of what this church believes. And so many of you don't know where we stand on deacons, maybe. Or even elders, or the plurality of elders. Maybe this is all new information to you, but it matters a lot. Because here's the point. God's calling you to be invested in a local church. And if it's going to be this one, you have to know where we stand doctrinally. And if it's not this one, find the one where the Lord's leading you. Because you're called to be invested a part of an active local church. This matters. This matters a lot. So in summary, what we see here is that the work of both elders and deacons are ministries that mirror Jesus. And really, any ministry that we do should mirror that of Jesus's. And take that step further. If you're a Christian, you're called into ministry. How about that? Discipling one another is ministry. And ministry is messy. But what we see in Jesus, Jesus says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. We are servants. And the church leaders are definitely called to serve. Servant leadership. So when it comes to this, when a church serves like this, it's powerful. When church leadership serves in this way, it's powerful. One, it brings life within the local church. And two, it brings life into the community which the local church is in. Now, I want to go back to Acts 6 just for a second. I, I encourage you to read that on your own time for sure. As we see in Acts 6, 1 through 6, we see this disturbance. We see a ministry organized to meet and help needs. But in Acts 6, verse 7, Following the structure they put in place, it says, So the word of God spread, and disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number. Imagine that. Church structure actually has benefits. Isn't that amazing? It's almost like God is a God of order, which I'm a type A checklist personality, so I amen this all the time. Structure is awesome. 
It's good. It's almost like God knew what he's doing. It's wild. But we see that the gospel spread. The church was unified with healthy structure in place. And that's what we want to strive to do, have healthy structure. And now I just want to take a quick look at these last three verses in chapter 3. One, what we see every single week. Verse 14 says, I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And I just want to drive home this point one more time. He's talking about local churches, the church of God's household, to conduct themselves. I can't conduct myself well in a church in Ethiopia. I just can't. I'm not there. Talking about local churches, it matters. Doctrine matters, and how we operate and live amongst each other matters. God's designed a way for us to live in a way that's unifying, if we just trust his word. In verse 16, it says, And most certainly, the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up, into glory. I think in short, what we can say here, and it's really a question, as we see in this whole list of chapter 3, does our conduct correspond with our confession? This is a confessional statement that's being made here. Does our conduct correspond with the confession that we make about Jesus? If we're following Jesus, if we're following Christ, is our conduct more Christ-like than culture. When we look at these lists, how are we measuring up? I don't know about you, but I am convicted every time I read this. And just this week, I wasn't going to share this, but I'm going to do it anyway. So I got the microphone, I can do that thing. Just this week, when it talks about leading your family well, I've had some own blind spots in my own life on my own kids and the encouragement or lack of encouragement I give them. Amazing how just this week I would feel less than qualified to stand before you. But what I have to remember is that I'm going to fall short. But it's by God's grace he shows me either sin or correction that's needed in my life. Does it hurt? Yeah. But it's God's grace leading change. And so I can stand up here and say, woe is me and God, I'm not worthy of doing this. And it's true, I'm not worthy of leading a local church. But for some crazy reason, for God's glory, he has me before you. And he has me with you. I don't know why. But I'm trusting him. But what about us? How are we living our lives of character? The character qualities required of an elder and a deacon are clear qualities of a mature Christian. Expectations of Christian living. So I have to ask the question, how are we doing? How are we doing? And do we have a good reputation among outsiders? And what this points back to is the gospel. This whole thing points back to the gospel. Do you know Jesus? Because you cannot possibly live in a way that's glorifying God without the Holy Spirit in you. And that only comes by faith. This whole confessional statement goes from God came down in the flesh. His name is Jesus. Live the life that we couldn't live. God requires perfection, holiness, righteousness, which none of us are. But Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we were tempted, yet without sin. 
to be able to pay the price fully and finally for every sin that you have done, are doing, and will do. And you can receive forgiveness for your rebellion against a holy God because of our sinfulness by faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. And this changes everything. So like just this week, I felt the scheme of the devil hurling accusations of condemnation against me because of this blind spot I had in my life. But is it condemnation or conviction? That's what God does. He brings conviction to restore relationships, to restore relationship with him and with others. But do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sin? I don't, know, I don't mean like you've read it and understand it. Do you believe it? Because when you believe it and trust it, that is saving faith that transforms your life right now and your eternity forever and forever is a long time. God created you to have a relationship with him, but you and I have this sin that has separated us from him in his presence forever. But in God's grace, Jesus paid the price for our sin, died and rose again, so that everyone who would believe in him alone has eternal life right now and lasts forever at the moment you believe. So do you believe that? When Jesus paid the price for your sin, said, to tell us die on the cross, meaning it is finished, your pet sin debt has been paid in full, a debt that you couldn't pay, but applied to your debt by faith, do you believe that? That's a question only you know, only you can answer. And Christians, we need to be reminded of the gospel because we're going to fall short. But what do we do? Do we stay falling down? Do we stay beat up? Or do we get up and say, I am a child of God? Yes, I am. Is that what we sung? We sing it because we need to be reminded of it. Because the culture and the devil will say everything contrary. We are a child of God because of Jesus and what he did. Do you believe it? I'm going to ask us to, to respond like we do every single Sunday. Because it matters. So I'm going to ask our band to come up here and we're going to, we're going to sing another worship song. We're going to continue worshiping because of who God is and what he's doing. But I'm going to ask you, what is he doing in you right now? In your life at this moment? I mean, as you look through these qualifications, we see that these are Christian qualifications, Christian character. What's God pointing out in your life that needs to change? That's a good thing. That's a good thing if he's showing you things that you've gone astray from. Maybe you're not loving your wife well. You're not loving and raising your kids in the instruction of the Lord. Maybe you're not loving one another well. Maybe you have a difference or an argument or a stress in your relationship with someone else. Instead of just letting it linger, it's time to pursue restoration, reconciliation in those relationships. Are you striving to live at peace with everyone as much as you have control over it? Are you being controlled by influences? Are you being compelled by the love of Christ? Are you being beat down by the world? Or is it time to finally stop relying on your own strength? and returning to the strength that we have in Christ Jesus because you cannot fight the battles that you will face and are facing by yourself, and you weren't meant to. You have Christ on your side and a church along your side. We are in this spiritual battle together. But first, you have to surrender and say, I'm not good enough. I can't do this. 
I need you. I need others around me. And that's the hard part. You respond to what God's doing in your life. I'm going to pray for us. We'll have a prayer team over the side. We'd love to pray with you. But I want you to respond to what God's doing right now. And that may look a variety of ways. We're going to pray. Maybe as we sing, you stay praying, just spending time with the Lord as he leads. Maybe you grab someone else around you and you pray together. Or maybe it is you stand and sing and you praise God because he is praiseworthy. He is faithful. He always has been and always will be. And he's present in your life regardless of what you're enduring and going through. The point being, you respond to what God's doing right now in your life. Let me pray for us and let's continue this time of worship together. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the local church that you have established, Lord. I thank you for the encouragement that you bring when we gather together as your people to worship you. I thank you for your encouragement that you bring as we gather together throughout our daily lives to encourage, to walk alongside one another. Lord, I thank you for the promise and the truth of knowing that we are not alone in whatever we're going through, whether it's struggle, anxiety, stress, we're not alone. We're not to bear the burden alone. You are with us. And you've established the local church to come alongside one another, to bear burdens, to encourage, to equip. And what a wonderful design you have made. Lord, I ask right now that you lead us in this time of response. Help us to surrender every struggle, sin, issue in our life to you. Knowing that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's only you who does that. We cannot clean ourselves up enough. So give us the desire to bring all of our cares before you and remind us of the truth of the gospel for everyone who believes that Jesus died for our sin, that we are declared children of God. Father, shape our hearts, refresh our souls and our minds and our spirit. Move in this place, Father. Lord, we thank you. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Way Church Podcast. If you would like prayer or if you'd like to talk to someone about a personal relationship with Jesus, please contact us through our website at thewaychurchrva.com.